y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is all you made, hard to believe. We have an awesome show for you this week with someone that I admire tremendously and someone with whom I've gotten generally close, Dan Lebitard, host of the Dan Lebitard show on ESPN Radio and on ESPN News every day from 10 to 1 Eastern. And Dan is someone who has long fascinated me because he's completely unafraid to broach any topic, and he always does so with such tremendous knowledge. And something that I've learned about Dan during my time working with him and getting to know him and Stu Gotts and Mike Ryan and Roy and Chris and Allison and everyone involved in that show is Dan's love for his friends. He is loyal. And that in this day and time is something that I appreciate so much. He will go to the mat. He will lay on the tracks for his guys. And I can remember being asked summer of 2017 to fly down to Miami and co-host Highly Questionable with Dan. And during that week, I got a vision of this person that I'd never had. And part of that vision was the tremendous optimum respect and love and appreciation that he has for his father, Poppy. Any of you who are fans of the show, fans of Highly Questionable, know all about Poppy. I was so fulfilled by this conversation with Dan. It told me so much about the man, why he is who he is, his tremendous adoration for his parents, their journey to America, and the life that he's so appreciative for that they gave him because of their sacrifice. And it was amazing to listen to. It was um, emotional to listen to, and it will be the same for you. I want you guys to understand something. Dan did not have the time. The day that we taped this interview, he didn't have the time And I told him, hey, man, we can push this. We can hold off to when you have a little more time. He said, no, Marty, no. We'll take all the time you need. Just let's let's do it. I have nothing but time for you. But the truth is, he didn't. And he did it for me anyway. And I'm so appreciative for that. But before we get to my conversation with Dan, I want to speak with you guys quickly about Dollar Shave Club. Look, we all want to look good. In my job, high definition is not your friend, guys. I need some help. And Dollar Shave Club offers me that help to make sure that I keep this beard in working order. As my man Marcus Spears calls it, laced. I don't even know what that means, but my man Spears says that when the beard is tight, it's laced. Dollar Shave Club offers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Everything you need. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just $5, you can get their Daily Essential Starter Set. It comes with body cleanser, one-wipe Charlies, their amazing butt wipes. Everybody needs butt wipes, right? Especially those of us that travel, you got to have your butt wipes on the road. Their world-famous shave butter and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. I'm telling you guys, I live on the road. I'm on the road all the time. 
and I have to get up. I have to have my act together. I got to wear nice suits. I got to have the look. And it ain't easy to make this presentable for America in high definition. But Dollar Shave Club helps me do that every single day. Now, let's head off to the interview on the Marty Smith's America podcast. Here I am with Dan Levitard. This man has just completed a four-hour radio show and a marathon hour-plus, however long, highly questionable taping. And now he's kind enough to sit down and spend time with me to tape a podcast that doesn't benefit him one iota. It benefits me. And for that, I am tremendously grateful. Danny, thank you so much for your time. Oh, that's all unnecessary, Marty. All you do is help us all the time. So that's, <laughs> I'm happy to do it for you. Thank you for, thank you for granting me a piece of your platform. It's a fun platform. Well, thank you. People don't know. One thing people don't know about Danny is what he does for people he cares about. At least I think he cares about me. He might be doing this out of pity. But <laughs> with that, uh, I can't tell you again how much I appreciate it. And I will tell you off the top, this might be a little uncomfortable for you. You don't strike me as a guy who loves to talk about himself very much, but I'm going to try to make it. So I'm just so interested in your path and how you became this media juggernaut. And one of my favorite parts about watching you uh, both as a colleague and as an admirer is your relationship with your, da- your dad. So I want to start right there. I mean, Poppy's a damn legend. How would you describe your relationship with your dad? <laughs> Oh, it's great. This is, uh, this is funny because media juggernaut, uh, that's very kind of you, but the reason uh, this became a media thing is because ESPN makes things big and impressive. So this is not because of anything other than ESPN. And I don't say that to infomercial on behalf of ESPN. It's the reach of the company. So they allowed me to do this show with my father on television and the relationship throughout my childhood was me trying to please the old man. He comes uh, Cuban exile in search of freedom in this country. He births the American dream working in a factory. I try to admire him. He's my male role model throughout. Um, and then at the end of his career, he gets fired at 59 years old, and they dump all his stuff in a trash can, and we had to figure out uh, what to do with him because that was really hard for him. And so now we do this television show together, and it's the greatest blessing of my professional life to be able to you know, spend his old age spend really, I mean, all we're trying to do there, Marty, is connect fathers and sons. Like the whole, the whole starting place there to everything is people recognize their own father and my father, often a father who's no longer in their lives. So the idea that I get to connect with this man this way and that people get to watch the vulnerability of an adult son connecting with his old man, it's brought women to our show that don't care about sports. It's made the show have like a, uh, an appeal among children uh, that feels like it's a, you know, it's a kid's show sometimes because my father is a bit of a Muppet, but yeah, like, <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I answered your question oh, at all, you but have I'm, answered I, it better. I'm very close. I'm very close to my father. always have been. And I'm hugely appreciative of the sacrifices my parents made so that I would never have to make a single compromise. I want to dive much deeper into that in just a moment. But first I want to tell a quick story and it's interesting that you say, that you want to be this example of fathers and sons and bring that into people's living rooms. You make me think about my dad. I lost my dad 10 years ago, and I miss him terribly every single day. And I I had this great moment last year at some point. I think it was during the summer. I don't recall specifically, but uh, you and your production staff were kind enough to have me down to Miami to spend a week with you co-hosting Highly Questionable. And 
I saw this moment where that, that I want to share with the audience because to me it truly exemplifies your relationship with him and your care for him. Poppy, so you guys know, he tapes many different lines during the taping of the Highly Questionable show, all of which are hilarious. And as he was going through that exercise while I was there one day, he was getting frustrated because they weren't coming out the way that he wanted them to, and he started to get a little bit frustrated. And Dan puts his hand on top of his father's hand and embraces his father's hand and just says, Poppy, calm down. It's okay. We have nothing but time. Nobody's going anywhere. Just take your time. And I want you to know it was one of the sweetest things that I've ever seen. And I found it to be, it told me all I needed to know about you. I knew right then. I'm, I'm in this guy's corner. I'm going to the mat with this dude. It meant a lot to see it. Um, thank you for that. I have, you know, my father, my father had a hard time saying I love you to me because of repressed Cuban things. I, my father has, uh, you know, doesn't express himself or pride very well. So, um, the idea that you would see the intimacy of the connection when it's not verbalized in any way is, uh, it's very kind of you. But I will say on while you witness that moment, there are plenty of times that he's a hell of a lot more annoying and frustrating <laughs> than that. It ain't always that. Trust, trust, trust. It ain't always that. A lot of people listening right now. Don't know your parents' story of exile from Cuba. So detail that for us, please. Um, they came, uh, they left. They left in their teens. They left Cuba thrown to the wind almost literally by the grandparents who were worried about the regime that was coming. And so imagine that, Marty. You've got kids. Imagine, imagine the idea of, I mean, the ocean's filled between Miami and Cuba with those stories and those bodies. Like literally, I'm not doing that metaphorically. The ocean is filled with people who have thrown their lives or their children's lives to the wind to get to freedom so my parents are not immigrants they are exiles they had money in cuba they were happy in cuba their families were happy in cuba they left money for poverty because of how much they valued freedom and so they built a life here through a great many struggles with my father working as a waiter my father got without speaking english uh he got master's degrees in engineering and you know they made a life for themselves and it was a hard life it was rough you know and uh i never experienced any of that because they protected me and my brother for all of it so that we could create so we could just be creators my brother's a professional artist very successful and these are not easy professions writing and art are not easy professions but it all starts there because they made exile sacrifices that you know, in many ways, are the story of Miami. Miami's built on on those kinds of stories. Parents who made the sacrifices so their kids could have the freedom. How does their story impact your perspective on freedom? Oh man, it's everywhere. It's um, I value it more than anything. Um, it's just in everything that we do, and I know we do this silly thing. It's ridiculous what we do, but we have the freedom to do it our way. And I imagine. Being outside of Bristol, I don't know this to be so, but given the number of people who gravitate from the company toward us, I imagine that these kinds of environments don't exist very much in workplaces where everybody enjoys each other's company and is having fun and, and it's just creating. It's just enjoying creating. So everything we do professionally is born of that freedom. And that's just an iota of my life that every Everything me and my brother do is born of what my parents came to seek in this country. I want to read an excerpt from something you wrote back to you, and I want to 
get you to expound on in a moment. This is from the piece you wrote on March 21st, 2016 in the Miami Herald when President Obama and Major League Baseball went down to Cuba for an exhibition baseball game. Quote, I'm not too emotional. I don't do a lot of down, but I cry just about every time I write about Cuba. My pain is very much borrowed. My grandparents and parents endured, endured it so that my brother and I never would, but it stings just the same. The fear and desperation of my grandparents combined with the suffering and sacrifices of my parents to produce an odd combination of sorrow and guilt and gratitude that won't stay down. Damn, man, that is quite a stanza. What is that emotion? I mean, it's hard to explain in that um, how would you feel if all of your successes, whatever those successes are, weren't a product of you, but of the people who came before you to offer you the opportunity. And, uh, and so their life, the life of a Cuban in America has, and I don't want to get into the politics of this because it runs everybody off, but the life of the Cuban in America can feel like with many minorities, you could feel pretty damn lonely when the things that you're fighting for, the rest of the country doesn't understand or care to understand. Whenever, Whenever Cuba's history is laid out in front of people, um, they're like, okay, you have our attention. But so many people don't have access to that kind of history. They don't know about the firing squads and the, you know, my mother being molested, visiting her brother in prison because her brother was jailed for a decade simply for having, you know, government beliefs that were not in any way offensive in this country, but in that country gets you jailed for 10 years. And so there's all sorts of suffering like that, that I never had to endure, Marty. I don't know what it's like to to be inherently suspicious of leadership or of propaganda, of all the things that, you know, people with post-traumatic stress disorder have about communism. So I, 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 I want to fight for that pain. Let me tell you the backstory on this because this was cool. My mother was feeling really um, wounded when ESPN decided and baseball decided to go to Cuba. And we were invited on that trip. My father and I were invited and we were going to go. Uh, but my mother couldn't bring herself to go. My mother was not returning the calls of the president of the company. Um, she didn't want to go. And so we didn't go. Because all of it, the return, the idea of it was too traumatic for her. And so I, I don't know, and forgive me for the meandering, but I don't no, know if I, that answer, answers your question, but that's that's where we started. It absolutely does. It's fascinating to me because of ignorance. I mean, you know, I'm a white dude from the South, right? So while I can be empathetic to all man, all mankind, that doesn't mean I have acute knowledge of what that feels like, Right. So uh, it is very fascinating. But imagine all of that. Okay, so imagine the stories. I didn't have access to any of them. You know, your neighbors work for the government. They are they can come into your house whenever they want. They're they're listening on your phones. Uh, you, you have religious beliefs. You're running through the streets being chased by, you know, uh, police officers wielding chains um, because, uh, you know, they you just have you want freedom or you want to you want to march somewhere. And uh, all of that stuff was interesting to experience through ESPN when baseball went over there for a number of different reasons. But the the part that hurt was how lonely a celebration felt for, for Cuban-Americans because you're watching that and you're like, wait a minute, that guy's brother is still in charge. That dictator is our Hitler and that guy's brother is still in charge and we have no assurances of, you know, and still 
we don't I, I can't see any profit for America with our relationship with Cuba other than the cruise line industries get to get to have a new port like all of my objections to that game, though they were more emotional than rational. We still haven't gotten much in the way of proof that normalized relations have helped anyone. But I don't think anyone wants to have this conversation on the Marty Smith podcast. Do you, you want you want to have like do you want to have normalized relationships with Cuba? I, I don't think that's what people are here for, Marty. Let's shift gears. Uh, you did mention the president of the company a moment ago. That was John Skipper at the time and uh, a friend of to both of us. Uh, you were really emotional when you read the news aloud live on your show when John resigned. What was that emotion? Oh, I just know what he was trying to do. I know that by, you know, he, he was at ESPN. He had a he inherited a corporate structure that allowed them to hire us from the outside to outsource the fun because the corporate culture is what it has been. And so they wanted to. Skipper wanted to hire some fire starters, right? That's where the company, I guess, became liberal when a bunch of minority voices were on platforms where you're not used to seeing them. I became closer friends to John Skipper after he left the company than I ever was during uh, or before. Uh, just, you know, getting close to him because once you get away from the fame and stuff and the power, people tend to abandon you. So I've become yep. much closer. But I know what he was trying to do. I know what he was trying to do at this company. And so... When when he left, the the guy that I most know to be trying to do that was gone. And so there was just a sadness because he's the only reason I'm here, Marty. Like he his idea for this, which is just put some people here in power that can help influence the content. It, he was he's the only reason I'm at ESPN. Well, he was really good to me, too. He let me do me. And it was it was very empowering. How how would you describe your professional approach? Um, Try. To have fun now, it wasn't always that. Writing is suffering, writing is hard, writing is lonely, and that's what I did growing up. And I wanted something that was more communal. I wanted environments. I wanted uh, places where people could be themselves and feel creative freedom. And so uh, what we're going for is fun. We do it with some smart. We do it with some stupid. We do it with some bizarre. We do it with some bad judgment. But what we're going for is fun because I've always been confused by the idea that in the fun and games department we're not having quite enough fun it's only it's the only reason you're allowed to exist marty is because we're not having enough fun because your personality type is what should be everywhere in sports and you're the different one and i don't get how you get to be different having more fun than everyone we should all be trying to outcompete each other on the fun it's all about fun man and nobody's gonna outfun me bubba sorry yeah i lose okay but i'm trying what? and i got and i got an army behind me bubba i was gonna so you say talk all your shit, but i got an army behind me you got you got that one guy who's hanging around you all the time, whose name I for Travis. I forget Wiley. his name. Wiley, I forget his name all the time. You got that one guy. Why does the Dan Lebitard show work, Dan? Um, why does it work? Uh, because people want to have fun. Ultimately, is that the why? Um, I think that there are a lot of things for a lot of different people on our show. So we're we are casting a wide net. If you care about sports marginally. Uh, we'll give you the pop culture. If you care about sports deeply, we'll get you the group of people who discuss it, uh, discuss it smartly. So you've got a lot of different ingredients, but the, the one that carries us is laughter. Like just that what it's medicine, man. Like yes, if, it is the, the number of people who come up to us. I've been depressed. I lost my wife, my dog, my father. 
thank you for residing in my ear for three or four hours a day and just allowing me to laugh for a second so I don't have to think about my bills and my problems. The number, it's probably the compliment I get most often. Uh, and it's, and it's one of the deepest because it's the only thing that makes, it, it's the only thing that allows you to rationalize this nonsense that we get paid for, which is pretty meaningless. Right. I mean, you built the most popular sports talk radio show. Certainly at our network. ESPN maybe. built that. ESPN built that. Marty, before us, it was Colin Cowherd. Before that, it was Tony Kornheiser. Before that, But it's it was- a whole different thing. See, you're the antithesis of those. That's okay. my point. Your, your entire mantra, your entire direction, your entire thematic approach is the antithesis of those shows. So how did it happen? Um, okay. A, a number of different reasons. One of them is if you want to go back to the start and the seeds of childhood, my father's a bit of a, a rabble rouser, a contrarian. He, he likes, uh, he likes friction and he likes, um, he likes just rolling grenades into the establishment. <laughs> so start, start there, right? So I'm, so I come from exiles. I, I, yeah, I'm come from exiles. I'm, I'm, yeah, in search of freedom. And then, and then you get to sports and you realize while thinking for yourself, man, people are taking this really seriously and it doesn't have to be taken that seriously. And your choices are either to do it better than everyone else is doing it, which didn't seem terribly hard, um, in sports radio, uh, in sports radio, in sports radio, or right. to just try and be something that's so totally different that maybe it finds its footing because so much of the sports radio is the same. So from that perspective, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not much of a choice. So what are the consequences of a society based on hot takes? Oh, but this is just the, this is just the trend for now, right, Marty? Because like Jim Rome invented the hard, uh, the, the hot take. He was uh, in the jungle. Jim Rome, I think yep. at one point was making more money than any athlete by contract because of the value of the take. And now we've gone in the other direction where people realize that the hot take is a hot take. And a lot of people are objecting to gas bag X bloviating about whatever it is that he's bloviating about. And so now we'll zig it. What will end up happening here is that some other permutation will emerge in three or four years that wipes us all out. What is the number one rule in your estimation to being successful in the sports media industry? Uh, think for yourself. Uh, How many people do you know actually do that? Well, I, I would say, Marty, I would ask the audience, I would ask your podcast listeners, when, how often are you discerning enough, me discerning enough to say that in sports media anywhere, I want to hear what that original thinker thinks about that? What's the number? If I ask you, Marty Smith, as a consumer of sports media in this country, how many people do you need to go to as an original thinker to maybe change your mind on things or make you think a little bit? If not, if not necessarily just laughter, uh, but make you think, what's the number? Not too high. Um, I don't know. It's not very high. I'll say that. And so when that's your, when that's the lowest common denominator and everyone's at the trough and everyone's giving opinions, your choices are to give opinions that are better than everyone else's, which seems kind of hard, or just take a path that's a little bit different and see if you can lure, you know, cast a wide net and then see what comes your way with the power, by the way. And I will keep saying this, Marty, with the power of the biggest sports entertainment empire in the world. Like, right. They will make anyone a star. They will if they give them enough time and resources. 
Well, I come, look, I, I can't even begin to debate that. It's given, the ESPN has given me a life I never could have begun to in my most fantastic dreams ever imagined. And me too. Me too. I cannot, I, can, I, I, I try, Dan, I try every day. And I've said this to you and Stu, to your faces. I cannot rationalize it. I try very hard to understand my greater purpose in this thing and I, not to get all off into the religion or faith part of life. But man, when I pray, I ask, man, what, what am I supposed to be doing on a broader plane here? Because you have given me a life where I make a really good living and have met amazing people for doing a backflip off a high dive at the university of Miami. But you know, the answer to that, right? It's just pass it on. It's just like, that's, what what I we know want. it seems too simple. You're right. You're you're absolutely right. But it just seems too simple. Um, I have I have found great nourishment in this nonsense that we do because of the idea of giving people a space where they feel free. Like in in starting the conversation, we were talking about freedom. Like I don't know that I have a greater pride. I know I said that working with my father is my greatest professional pride, but I don't know that I have a greater pride around here than allowing people the room to work so that they can be themselves and be ultimately creatively free. Well, in my estimation, there are very few people who have their name on the door, as you do, who have given so much opportunity to, like, to just take the shipping container, right? That's For those of you who may not watch or listen to Dan's show, uh, first of all, you're missing the hell out, so get on it. But second, uh, the production side of Dan's show is a bunch of brilliant people, and they, he, they're in basically a closet. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he calls it the shipping container. But you have made... Their closet's every- bigger than the room I'm in. If they're in a closet, <laughs> yes, I'm right. in a toilet. That's right. You're in the john. But you have, you have given all of them a voice and an opportunity to grow their own brands. Why is that important to you? Oh, but wait a minute. You're thinking that's altruism. That's selfish. They make the show better. They're they're funnier. They're younger. Um, I'm aging. Like This is how this show ages. It's the only way for it to age is for them to get strong enough to carry us because I'm – you know, I'm 49 years old. I can't, and Stugatz is 44. Like, we can't be the thing for young people. They got to keep us young. So that's, uh, that's evolution, self-preservation. And, uh, and hopefully within that, um, that's, uh, man, Marty, I, th- I feel like that's something we've learned over the last six months. Like, there have been some freedoms around here, but it's never been as free an environment as it is right now. Hmm. That's interesting. Why? There was a softening in me in terms of controlling this environment. I realized that I, I had too much control of this environment. Um, and, and so I wanted to let go a little bit, uh, because I, because I do trust these people to make us better. They've been learning at, they've been learning how to do our show for 10 years. And so they have all the sensibilities and very often they can do it better than me and Stugatz can. It's how, it's how they will allow us to age gracefully. At what point did you know the show had transitioned into a cult monster? Man, that one's hard to say, Marty, because I don't – it feels like every day my life is changing a little bit. Just before we started today, I feel like waves have been hitting me all day. Like, I don't know exactly what happened around here, but something changed, um, I don't know, eight months ago. Maybe it was Skipper leaving. I don't know. But things – now, now we're the popular thing because everyone keeps telling us that we're the popular thing. And, uh, and our show has a, I guess, an addictive, sticky quality that makes, there's rare in, in the modern age of sports entertainment where you actually care 
uh, if you're missing something where you where you want to get to the next episode so that you understand the jokes or whatever like um yeah all that stuff all that stuff is feels new some of that not all of it but a lot of it feels new like it just feels like we are now headed toward the biggest time in our lives which is really weird because we've been at this for 15 years 15 years nick saban said to me once that the greatest obstacle to excellence is complacency. What fear do you have about complacency? You're on oh, the air four hours yeah, a day, yeah. every day, mm-hmm, dude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not even complacency. It's it's where and how does the intellectual curiosity get diluted because you've got too much going on. Uh, I don't know whether having a family or getting married is something that will change that. I've always been hungry, and we sort of fight with an exile's uh, work ethic on things. Uh, but I just think if we get – if this show ceases to be intellectually curious, uh, it's where most creative things die. So it doesn't seem like complacency would be an option. Dilution might be an option because we just got too much going on, but it can't be for lack of effort. Well, I think that's one of the brilliant parts about having so many different voices and so many different minds all contributing so openly is any listener, that, is, especially those of us who are so passionate about it, are listening to your show, someone will have a random thought, whether it's Mike or, well, Roy doesn't say very much, but Chris or whomever, Billy, somebody will have a, a random thought that will spur three segments out right. of nowhere. Right. right. So there's the there's a brilliance in that in that diversity of thought. Well, help me out with something here because I don't know what your college conversations were like, but the, the the radio show's ethos or sensibility comes from conversations that I had when I discovered conference calling with my friends in college, and so we'd call each other, and it'd be four or five of us, <laughs> and all we were doing is just making different kinds of jokes. So the spirit of that is the spirit of this, where you know we've gotten to a point here where everybody wants to be in on the joke and everyone knows what their roles are and so they can they can hit if you're if you got a fifth or a sixth voice looking to be funny only f- as the fifth or sixth voice it becomes easy to find those spots yeah. where you can be funny as the fifth or sixth voice when you're not you know forced to carry the entirety of the show so i do want to reward all of that because oftentimes they have a better idea where the show could go and they know me better or stugat's better and can push us in that direction you got to have that glue guy right i mean we got a bunch of them we got a bunch of them. Uh, Stu Gotch is a genius, isn't he? <laughs> Idiot genius. That's right. Idiot, Idiot savant. You know, Idiot it's, savant. it's amazing. The whole thing's amazing. He, Marty, I've said, I've been telling Stu Gotch this. At the end of this, okay, I'm not kidding. At the end of this, when it's Estugat's PN, and he is, uh, he is, <laughs> he is standing atop the carcasses of Dan Patrick, Rich Eisen, Mike Wilbon, uh, Marty Smith, everybody, because he wins. He's going to win at the end. Uh, the last place he's going to plant the last flag at the top of this kingdom is right in the center of my <laughs> Like, I'm the one who's going to go down last as Stugatz wins all. How did he get that? What? How did he get the name? Who gave uh, it to him? Uh, Hank Goldberg. He was a radio producer. Stugatz is often producing the show while in the show, and he was a radio producer for Hank Goldberg. And at the time, The Sopranos was popular. Tony Soprano's boat uh, was named... The Stugats, which I think is uh, derivative of cocky and ballsy. I should yep. tell you someday the uh, executive conversation I had at the beginning of that. <laughs> I'll tell you now. You want to you now? Yes, I'll tell you now. of course. 
All right, I'll tell you now. So I'm driving home right before we're starting at ESPN. I've got a million different fears about getting into bed with uh, with something this corporate as someone who's anti-establishment and, and covets freedom. And so the first call I'm getting in like a week into doing the show is somebody in Utah or Indiana had written a letter to an affiliate that that Stugat is is offensive, that the word Stugat in Italian means something offensive. So we had to fight all sorts of fights to just keep Stugat's name anywhere on the show. I'm having this conversation with an ESPN executive one week into this in which I am taking the phone call. I said uh. to him, yes, they, the, that Stugat is derivative of that, and so too is the character in being cocky and ballsy. Like, that's what the character is. It's cocky and ballsy. And so... From there, that's uh, that's where the name exploded. But we had to fight for it. We had to fight for it a good amount. How many days does he say something that just makes you go? Every day. What? What? Every in day. The hell? Even days he's not around me, he'll text me these things. <laughs> he'll he is a he is a fly around an elephant's ass, almost literally <laughs> on my end, not his. You guys seem to have mastered the use of social media, like with the polls and whatnot. How do you view the explosion of social media, net gain or net loss, and its impact on what we do for a living? Marty, I believe that you are vastly overstating things when you say we have mastered <laughs> social media. I don't hey, know what look, the hell man. you're talking about, Marty. Do you Marty, know how many people Marty, I can't vote get in those down app polls? on my phone. I can't order Starbucks on my phone. I have not I mastered either. social media. Every time I put something on Twitter, the entire shipping container laughs at me because I can't do that right either. There's been no mastery of social media around here, Marty. When you're out and listen, Listen, y'all, all of you guys listening need to understand one thing. Dan runs Miami. All right. I've been out. I've been out with Dan. It is crazy. The Pied Piper that this cat is. People flock to him like a, like locusts to a bug zapper. What do people say to you when you're out, man? Locusts, do they gravitate toward a bug zapper? I don't I think so. But I we'll don't take know. It. All right. Whatever. All right, you're getting poetic on my. There, redneck poetic. I, I like don't think it. that was. I think that was just really stupid. Anyway, okay, very good. <laughs> what do they say to you when you're out at the club, man? Oh uh, well, first of all, listen to me. The last time I was out at the club, my chest hurt. My nipples actually hurt because it was so loud at live, and that was like ten years ago. I ain't in no clubs. All right, they, the bar. Where did uh, we go? We went to a oh, bar. There I, I am. No, there I am. The bar. Okay, that's yeah. no problem. Now we're talking, big boy. So. The young people around here keep us young. I have no business being young. I've never been cool at any point in my life. This represents the most popular I've ever been. I do not deserve it. I should not be cool with young people. We are, at least in part, because Stugatz is a nine-year-old, and the, sh and the shipping container keeps us keeps us young. But so, yeah, it's a lot of fun here. Young people, Marty, the way to become popular is to be popular with young people. And right now, for the minute, our show is popular with young people. So that's that's who's generally at the bar as well. Let's go back to your name being on the door. How would you describe your leadership style? Oh, man. I've always said I'm a bad leader. I've always thought I don't want to be a leader. I don't I don't want to be a leader. I just want to come in and do my job and just uh, lead through sitting here and having people be inspired by how we do the job. But late in life, it's it's been forced on me a bit in a way that makes me uncomfortable because I don't – I've never aspired to that. I've never been – somebody who wanted to be a leader or a follower. I just wanted to be doing my own thing. Why is it forced on you? Because your name's on the door? Well, just because we're responsible for a lot of people now. Like, this thing has grown, and so there are a lot of employees around here. There are a lot of people. This is a bit of a – it's its own economy. 
And so you you have to be responsible for those people because you're caretaking on careers and lives of people you care about. So, yeah, that's how it gets forced on you. It's not something I wanted. Trust trust that it's not something that I want. All right, I'm going to get you out of here on this, brother. You said a moment ago you don't know what having a family or getting married or kids or all that might do to you. You're 49, you said, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 49. As you're looking down the line, what do you see for what's coming for you? Uh, professionally, personally, like, no, All I gotta, I gotta grow up at some point. Don't I, Marty? I Why? gotta grow up. You made I? it to a half century. I know, but that's laughing it. Laughing for a living. The run's over though. I gotta make a family. I gotta give the old man grandchildren. Don't I? Don't I have to, don't I have to give the old man something at the end here? No. The old man and the old lady. <laughs> no. They got, they deserve to be grandparents, Marty. Don't I have to do that? So what Dan Lebatard is telling me is, I didn't tell you anything, Marty. I'm just saying I asked a- you the question of whether or not my parents <laughs> deserve to be grandparents or not. I think they do. Well, I because they, do. they might, but I think the show the show would suffer from me becoming a dad. Like that, I'd be old and lame, and uh, it absolutely changes your perspective on uh, everything. I have three of them, as you know. I tell I tell you every time I'm on the show, I'm a 40 year old dad when I'm running some 50 yard dash in full pads somewhere. Uh it definitely changes your perspective, right? And your that, an odd time to say that you would admit, right? You were running in pads at Alabama, and for some reason, you felt the need to say, "I have three kids." I don't, I don't really know where the hell that came right. from. No, it came from you saying, "Like I'm doing this fun thing, running sprints at the Alabama practice," and you are. Are you telling me to have kids or not have them? Because this yeah, sounds fifties, uh, fifties, a little late. But that doesn't Marty, mean I didn't need that. I didn't need any of that. <laughs> and I'm not 50 yet. And what are you doing? Why? What do you mean it's a little late? No, okay. What are you doing to me, Marty? You don't understand the sleep deprivation part of young parenthood. Wait a minute. You mean you I? Wait a minute. This is what I don't understand. You don't mean I? I you mean I don't get to put that child in a basket in the ocean and then just check in <laughs> on it when it's not crying? That's not the way that works. That's not how it works, brother. Uh, it's going to work for the rich people that way. It's, uh, it's. I'm going to get a team of people. Allison, Mike, and Roy are going to be raising my baby. I wish you well. I will I'm going to be 70 when my child is 20, <laughs> Marty. I'm going to be 70 years old and my child is 20. And what of it? Did I make a, chi- your day a child I have not even conceived yet? A child that is right now just in the imaginative <laughs> stage because when you're sensual, nothing brings out that sensuality like Marty Smith. <laughs> Did I make your day better? Of course, you always do. You're Did I not, alleviate some of the stress? No, you made my day better, but then now you brought the stress <laughs> of children in my life. And something I hadn't thought about, which is a 20-year-old with a 70-year-old father. Yep. That's Although spectacle. Chris Cody knows what that what's that like. What's that like? Dude, Cody's the funniest guy, isn't he? Which one of them? Greg. I mean, he's a weirdo, Marty. Let's, That's okay. Listen, listen, I'm a weirdo. Marty, You're well, a weirdo. We're I, I weirdos. Know, I know, but everyone who comes into this environment is made a little bit funnier by the idea that we're all incredibly strange. Like he's he's really weird. He uh he has he has talent for writing. Yes, he does. He does and he has talent for funny. He does not have talent for this. Well, it was really really funny. Uh, I've I've witnessed him falling into a bush. And were you there? You were there that night. Were you there, or did, or did his son betray him and show you the video? I, I've uh, let's just say I've witnessed Cody falling into a bush. Okay, very and good. It's a hell of a spectacle. Yeah, it is. All right, we should. Put I it on. <laughs> I cannot 
Are you were you gonna put that on the poll? No, I want I know I want Chris's <laughs> son to put it on the internet because we've mastered the social media, as you say. And a drunk old person falling into the bushes is something that we should capitalize on. World star. It would do five million views if you if Chris put Cody put his father falling in that bush. Yep. It would break the tweeter. Five million. Five, five million. Over under on five million. It would Marty, break the tweeter. Marty, let me explain something to you. It sounds like you have to have a bigger life when you think that we've mastered social media and that we can break <laughs> Twitter by putting a video on there of an old person falling into a bush. It sounds like you're addicted to our crap just like everybody else is who's listening to this. Did I mention that I have three children? Yes. Oh, that's right. Okay. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. That was tremendous. I appreciate okay. your time, insight. Humor. All right. Don't get us in trouble, all right? We're in negotiations. Make sure to bleep out all those times I said Okay. All right. Very good. Thanks, bro. Have a great day. All right, buddy. You're appreciated. See you. Love you too, man. Amazing. The guy is so good. And I learn so much from him every single time that I get the opportunity to chat with him. One of my favorite things to do in this company, in this job, is when I get to be on their show. I love to laugh. I love to cut up. I love to have fun. And they have built a cult following that is unlike anything in sports. And I love it. They make me laugh every single day. He was right. I mean, you know, you heard him making fun of me. I'm one of these crazy wackos who knows all the shticks, who updates him on the polls and all that mess. I just love the show, and I appreciate him so much. I tell you, I had one of the more interesting appearances on their show while I was over in Paris with the Michigan Wolverines. I started the live shot on a merry-go-round just adjacent to the Eiffel Tower. So they come on, they bring me on, and I hear Dan go, why is Marty wearing a beret? And I start laughing. And then he says, is Marty on a merry-go-round? Yes, he's on a merry-go-round. Wait, is that the Eiffel Tower? What is Marty doing? And we cut up for a few minutes. And then Dan says, what are you doing over there? And, of course, I say, well, I'm following Michigan around. They're touring Europe. They're touring uh, Paris, excuse me. And we just went to Normandy Beach. And Dan's like, whoa, Marty, hold on. You cannot tell that story wearing that beret riding on a merry-go-round. And I agreed with him. I completely agreed with him. So I stepped off of the merry-go-round, and I stood there with the Eiffel Tower behind me, and I told the story. And I want to tell that story this week in the Marty Party. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's the Marty Party. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty Party. I went to Paris. With the University of Michigan Wolverines, Travis's favorite college football program. Stop cussing on this podcast, Marty. <laughs> Travis is a the Ohio State Buckeye, y'all. So I go to Paris with my producer, Jonathan Wiley, and our cameraman, editor extraordinaire, Sam Herdeman. Us three. We three. Get on an airplane and fly to Paris. And it was an amazing experience. We toured the Louvre. We uh, toured all over Paris with these guys. We saw the Eiffel Tower with them. But by far, the most impactful moment of that trip for every one of us was the trip to Normandy. We went on a Sunday, and the day began at the Cone Memorial 
you go through this tour, and they are wonderful in educating the patrons on how the subjects involved in World War II all became involved and how all of that unfolded. And so we did that tour, and then we made our way over to Gold Beach, which I can't tell you guys. I wish I could paint this picture for you. It is the British, the landing point for the British sector in the war. And it was a, it was a port that was made, and the remnants of the port are still sticking out of the water. And it is a sight to behold. It seems almost untouched all of these years later. And it was this stunning portrait that demanded of you that you think about what happened there. And it was emotional for Jonathan and Sam and me because it was driving rain. It was raining sideways and it was freezing cold. The wind there will slice right through you. It was freezing cold. And we're out there all alone. The team was not there yet. We had our own van and we're kind of stopping at, a, at our own, on our own time frame. It was an amazing moment for us. And as the team arrived, we were leaving to head on over, to head west to Omaha Beach, where, of course, the United States of America landed on D-Day. And, ladies and gentlemen, I have had many moments in this job that left me speechless. I have. Very few of them made me feel the way that that trip to Omaha Beach made me feel. Because when the Wolverines got there, they, I don't want to call it marching, but they they came in together in a close-knit formation. And four of those members of that program, uh, one of them was running back True Wilson, whose father is a Marine Master Sergeant. Chase Winovich is the all-Big Ten defensive lineman, defensive end for the Wolverines, who has military members in his family. Sean McGee is the associate athletic director for football. He uh, is a U.S. Naval Academy graduate. So these gentlemen are carrying American flags, and they're making their way into the colonnade where the formal service, the formal ceremony was held, and the idea was they were going to lay a wreath, a Michigan Block M wreath made of yellow roses and purple chrysanthemums at the feet of a monument that rests at the center of the colonnade. The monument is bronze, and It's the spirit of American youth rising from the waves is its theme. And around its base inscribed is, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And as you're standing there, the players filed in around that monument, around that statue. And Jim Harbaugh comes up, removes his signature hat, and addresses the assemblage, and he says, it is an honor and a privilege to be here to pay respect for all of those who gave so much to win so much. 
God bless America. And I found that to be such a profound statement. And I'll get into why in a minute. But as soon as Harbaugh stopped talking, taps began to play. And in a time when it's 18 and 19 and 20 year old young men, you can't get them the hell out of their phone for 10 minutes. Every one of them is immersed in the moment and many of them have tears in their eyes. Many of them were overwhelmed by the weight of this. You're talking about uh, off on the horizon. As far as you can see, there are white crosses in the American cemetery. The American flag is flying over top of this cemetery and taps is playing. It was an amazing moment for every one of us. And anyone who disparages what Jim Harbaugh is doing by taking these young men overseas, don't bring it to me. I'm not listening because I can see what it's doing. College is about more than a classroom and a football field contextually for these specific young men. They are making memories. They are seeing the world. This is an education in and unto itself. They are able to go to the Louvre, to Notre Dame, to uh, certainly Normandy, and be immersed within it. When they're, I told the kids this. I don't like calling them kids. I told the players this last year in Rome, and I told them again this year. In 30 years, when they're having, when Ohio State, when Travis's Buckeyes come to town, and they're having their reunion, and they're sitting around cracking cold beers and telling old stories about what happened between the lines. You mean when they lost and when they they tell stories (laughs) about when they lost, Marty. You forgot that part, but keep going. I did did forget that part. Rome and Paris and whatever trips they may take in the future are going to be part of that narrative. Do y'all remember when? And that's wonderful. And I'm sorry. I... I don't, if you don't like it, it's your problem. And after the formal ceremony took place there at Normandy, at Omaha Beach, I had the opportunity to chat with Harbaugh and his father, Jack. And his father, Jack, you know, these crosses are behind us. And Jack said, you know, we can sit around and talk about it in our classrooms. We can teach it, which we need to do. It's important. And we can talk about it at our dinner tables. Until you're here on this same soil, you cannot fully appreciate it. Following up from what his father said, Jim Harbaugh said, it's, if, if they did not, if they did not fight that war and win that war, our world would not look like it does now. And that is absolutely true. And I was so moved by it. I told them about my grandfather. My grandfather, James Cameron Massey, was the preacher man in George S. Patton's Third Army in World War II. And my grandfather, one snowy night in 2009, I finally got the balls to ask him about the war. I had never done it, honestly, because I was so self-absorbed that I never took the time to ask. And I finally that night thought, you know what, I need to thank him for what he did, and I need to ask him if he'll tell. Because a lot of guys in that greatest generation, a lot of those men and women who sacrificed during that time, Just don't talk about it. It's what they were asked to do and they did it. They just did it because that's what they did because they were, they wanted America to be the greatest country in the world. And I asked my grandfather, Papa Jim, I called him Papa Jim. Papa Jim, can you, I would love to know about the war. What can you tell me? For six hours, I sat there and listened to him tell me stories. He was the most gracious, welcoming, 
completely non-judgmental man I've ever known. He was grace personified to me. He welcomed all comers regardless of race, religion, creed, belief. He did, he, you were his brother. And one of the stories that he told me that night will stick with me forever. They had liberated a German concentration camp and my grandfather was so mentally taxed from laying in those fields in the pouring rain and the freezing rain trying to sleep in a puddle. He walked out of the camp and around the corner and around the corner was a pile of bodies. And there were, there was, uh, there were black men, there were Asian men, there were Germans, there were Jewish men, there were white American men, there were all kinds. And he was so overwhelmed with emotion in that moment, he said it was the most profound moment of equality he'd ever experienced in his life. And when he told me that story, he was 90, he was in his 90s when he told me that story. And to see the tears in his eyes when he told it. And he felt that way. It was the most profound moment of equality in his life because in that pile, they were all the same. And it was such an unbelievable moment to watch him tell me that story. And my grandmother, Frankie Henderson Massey, his wife of 75 years, was sitting there. Every night, my grandmother brought my grandfather crackers and milk, and they would watch the news together. Every night that I can ever remember being with them. And she brought him those crackers, and he's telling this story, and she has her hand over her, her right hand over her mouth. She's staring at the floor and holding him with her left hand. It was as if she was hearing it for the first time. I don't know that she was, but it sure did seem like it. And I'll never forget that moment. And I already had the utmost respect for him because of the way that I saw him treat everyone with whom he came, with whom he came into contact my entire life. I had, I mean, I had, I couldn't respect him more, but in that moment I did because he painted a picture for me about the hell he lived. And they, that generation is the greatest. It is, period. Now I'm going to try to transition. Not easy. Uh, that was, it was an amazing trip to Normandy. As you can tell, it, it affected me deeply. And you go from that, I leave there and I fly home for one night and then I get on a plane and fly to Louisville where I just covered the Kentucky Derby for the very first time. Uh, it was horse racing Harvard for me. I was afforded time and attention and insight that I, I didn't earn. I was afforded it because my producer there, Chris Kugler, who's covered horse racing for ESPN for many, many years, is so well respected in their barns in that in that industry. And I had the opportunity last Thursday to spend 20 minutes with Bob Baffert, the face of horse racing, who just won his fifth Kentucky Derby with Justify and jockey Mike Smith. My, uh, uh, Bob, Mr. Baffert, is the gentleman who has that shock of white hair. He's the face of horse racing, and he gave me such tremendous insight about how, why he felt like Justify was the horse that would win, and Justify not only won, he dominated, led flag to flag, you know, I mean, he, that was a dominant, dominant performance. I also was afforded more time than I deserved with Todd Pletcher, 
who was had four horses in the race. He won the 2017 Derby with Always Dreaming. He he's a huge Arizona Wildcats fan. So he walks out. I'm I'm waiting at their barn to interview Todd about the Derby, and he's like, "College game day, man. What are you doing here?" Uh, he's a big Arizona Wildcats fan, and he already knew Kevin Sumlin. I love Coach Sumlin from covering those guys when Kevin was at A&M. He's now gone over to Arizona. And uh, Todd Pletcher, the Magnum Moons trainer, had on an Arizona pullover. And so we spent 10 minutes talking ball, not only football but basketball. And then he's like, well, what are you doing here? I'm actually covering it. I said, I'm actually covering it. And he gave me this great – he's like, come on in here. So he takes me into his barn. I didn't know this, but those mints that are sitting in the bowl when you're leaving the restaurant, those star mints, those circular star mints, horses love them. So he, uh, uh, my producer, Chris, runs to the office and grabs me a couple of those mints, and Todd goes, put it in your hand and hold your hand flat and hold it out to always dreaming. And I do that, and that horse ate it right off my hand. I was like, man, this is crazy. Then he took me down and introduced me to Magnum Moon. And so I had this unbelievable behind-the-scenes experience. I learned so much about it, and I'm completely intoxicated by it. I'm all in. And I'm thrilled. I get to cover the Preakness here in a couple weeks. And to watch that race. Dude, I got to watch the race on the racetrack. I, they bring me down to the parade. They parade the horses around the paddock. Before the race, and then the jockeys come in, they mount the horses, they go out to the racing surface. I'm following these horses out this tunnel onto the track, and I'm like, what is going on? I had no idea I was going to watch the Kentucky Derby on the track. And it was exhilarating. The energy in Churchill Downs. As the derby is starting to unfold, that last 20 or 30 minutes before that race goes off is as amazing an experience as I've had in sport. And then for those those unbelievable athletes to come screaming by in unison like that just took my breath away. Hey, you got to do it, guys. You have to go to the Kentucky Derby. Now, it rained like hell. It was, the weather was absolutely terrible. But that race was as good as it gets. And I highly recommend it. I cannot wait to do it again. I got to experience that moment with my wife. Lainey came with me. And it was a wonderful day. A memorable, wonderful day. And then to get to interview uh, Mr. Baffert after he won his fifth Kentucky Derby to interview Mike Smith after he wins the Derby again and to see their appreciation for the effort that that horse made that day. Baffert told me it's as good a, a it's as good a Kentucky Derby performance as he's ever seen. And that's a man who knows because again, that's his fifth. And he actually told me during the week if everything had gone right for him, he would have eight or so wins in that race. One more quick thing about horse racing. There's so much I learned. I know I've said that a few times, but you guys can't, even the smallest setback ends the dream. There's a horse named McKenzie that was Baffert's horse as well that was going to run, 
but suffered a setback and didn't run. And so when you consider there's that one shot and now you don't get it, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing to me. I, I almost said I learned so much. I, I, I just can't, I cannot say enough how kind everyone was. I got to meet the owners from my boy Jack and spend some time with them. Awesome good old boys from Texas. And their horse, they paid $20,000 for that horse. Mendelssohn, the horse Mendelssohn is a $3 million horse. So in the same race, you have a $3 million steed running against a $20,000 steed, and both of them have the same shot. Crazy. I mean, I, I could go on and on. All right, you, Marty, you mentioned that it was raining. I know people are going to ask this question, and you mentioned it on Marty McGee uh, on Saturday. How did your hair hold up? Because people are going to want to know. Unfazed. I will say, though, that is not true. It was not unfazed because I wore a poncho out onto the racing surface during the race itself. And the poncho was like a youth poncho. And so the only thing that stuck, it was so tight on my head, my face was sticking out the poncho hole. And it did smash the, the, the hawk down a little bit. So some of the pictures in the aftermath are a little bit dicey, but generally no worse for wear. It did come through the storm amazingly well given the circumstances. Now it's time for the Hillbilly Hotline. And I want you guys to understand a buddy of mine called in. His name's Andy Cagle. Andy's from down in Rockingham, North Carolina. And many moons ago when I covered NASCAR as a writer for NASCAR.com, I was standing in a media center at Rockingham Speedway, and Andy comes walking into the media center. And he's holding a Mountain Dew on his head. I'm going to let him take it from there. Here's the Hillbilly Hotline. Words, sayings, or just a way of life. Roman Candles? That's a redneck mortar launcher. That's what that is. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. Marty, Andy Cagle again. Realize I'd probably tell the story a little better with a few cold beers in me, so now that I'm six-pack into these some of these Mexican <laughs> beers, uh, I figured I'd be a little bit better. Uh, so we're looking at uh, November 3rd, 2002. It's at Rockingham Speed, the North Carolina Speedway in Rockingham, and it is the Pop Secret Microwave Popcorn 400. I remember that date because I got hit in the head with a lug nut, and the only other person that remembers that date is Johnny Benson, because that day Johnny Benson won his only cup race. So it's pretty late in the race, eh, almost about 300. And there's a caution, because Ward Burton forgot how to drive. Um, love Ward, but he did. Wrecked. Caution comes out. I jump up from where I'm sitting in the media center, run out to pit road to take some pictures. Mark Martin had been running pretty well that day. So I said, hmm, let me go get some pictures of Mark Martin. Mark Martin's car was pitted right in front of this hole in the wall uh, where you t- where the drivers turn to go into victory lane. And so I thought, cool, I can stand right here, open wall, nobody around, get some good pictures. It's a good day, you know, good day for a reporter. So I get there, I get set up, I got my camera, I got my hat on backwards, doing all the things that you do. Security guy comes up to me and says, you know, when the cars come, you're going to have to move. I was like, all right, all right, all right. So... He walked off, and of course, this is where your ninth grade earth science teacher lessons come in. You can't be stupid. 
So there was a reason he told me to, to move. I didn't really want to listen. So he left, and I went back. Stupid. So <laughs> I'm standing there, getting my pictures, doing my thing. Pit stop, good pit stop by, by the number six Viagra team. That's, that's crucial to this story. <laughs> Drop the jack. Car takes off like normal. And next thing I know, something has popped me in the head. I had no idea. I was like, damn, what, what the hell was that? I look down and there is a bright yellow lug nut on the, just sitting perfectly on the asphalt in front of me. <laughs> and I thought, that SOB just hit me in the head. So I'd never heard, seen or heard of anything like that before. And I've been covering racing for a long time then, and I've been covering racing for a long time since. Still, we never heard nothing like that. So I didn't know what to do, so I just, you know, felt my head, made sure it wasn't bleeding, bit down, picked the lug nut up, put it in my pocket, went back to the media center. First thing I see is the, is the drink cooler with the Mountain Dew. I thought, okay, cool. I grabbed one of these, I put it on my head, It'll make it not hurt so bad. The swelling will go down, hopefully, and I can keep doing what I'm doing because I needed to write some more so I could get paid. So I walk in. I walk around the corner. Rockingham had a kind of weird media center. I walk around the corner, and the first person I see, because he had the the, the best seat in the place, was you. And he kind of looked up at me. And what I learned at that moment was, if you walk around with a Mountain Dew. Stuck to your forehead, people will look at you funny. So you were like, what happened? So I just reached in my pocket with my free hand and pulled out this lug nut and just flashed it at you. And you were like, oh, man. And, and it was kind of this look of shock on your face. And I was like, yeah, it hit me in the head. It came off of Mark Martin's car. Went through it. He was like, you were like, dude, that's badass. It's like, yeah, it's pretty cool, but it hurts. And so I had work to do, so I went and sat down. Next thing I know, there's like a swarm of people around me. And one of them was Christy King, who works for NASCAR now. She was the PR director at Rockingham at the time. One of my favorite people, not just in racing, but everywhere. Um, said, Andy, you got to come with me right now. I was like, all right. So still have my mountain dew on my forehead. She takes me to the, takes me out to a golf cart. We get on the golf cart and we go over to the infield hospital there. And, uh, and so the doctor can see me. And I walk in, and as I'm walking in, Ward Burton is walking out. And Ward looks at me real funny, and uh, and I just pulled out the lug nut and showed it to him, and he said something that I don't know what he said because it was Ward Burton. And <laughs> he just looked at me funny, and he just kind of nodded his head and walked off, and I was like, okay, that was weird. But I go in and see the doctor, and the doctor kind of checks me over, you know, not quite the way that Dr. Wiki looked at Cole Trickle, but, you know, kind of like that. And uh, he, he said, all right, man, you're fine. He said, well, you were as fine as you were before you got hit by the lug nut. So I go back and finish my day, no problem, but I swear I sported a ring on my forehead for about two weeks. And a few years later, I went to work at Rockingham for Andy Hillenberg, and I could not walk by that spot on Pitt Road without taking a major left and, and turning and just staying as far away from that as I could because I just had these flashbacks of being hit in the head by this lug nut. <laughs> and, um, again, like you, 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 earth science teacher said, you just can't fix stupid. And that was that's my story of being just as stupid as you can be. And I'm really lucky I didn't die. 
That's Andy Cagle, y'all. Uh, I remember that moment very well. Andy did not get into the swelling. You guys should have seen the goose egg on this dude's head. I mean, it looked like somebody buried a baseball underneath his forehead skin. It was crazy. And he just, I mean, he had this Mountain Dew on his face. I'm like, hey, man, what happened? And he pulls the Mountain He didn't tell this part. He pulls the Mountain Dew away and points. And there is like a goose egg. I mean, a baseball on his forehead. And he is legend. He will be legend forever. He's one of McGee and my favorite people. And I appreciate him sharing his redneck escapades. And that will not be the only time that Andy calls in here. He's one of McGee and my favorite people in the world, and he is a full-blown redneck. He has many stories of his escapades. Uh, so he'll be calling in, I'm sure. And I think that you got what? What number will he be calling, Marty? I don't know. You have to tell him. I don't know that number. We're going to get you to memorize this at some point. No, you won't. This, this, this will be my, this is a harder goal than getting Baker Mayfield on the podcast. <laughs> the number is 860-516-1315. 860-516-1315. Y'all call it. Seriously. I know you guys have funny stories for us because you call in every Saturday morning because you're inspired by McGee and Cooter and me to tell these insane stories, and we love sharing them with the world. Guys, look, I, I want you to know something. I, the blessing of this job is not lost on me. I texted every one of my bosses on the plane coming home from Louisville just to thank them for it because I have the greatest job in the world. I do not forsake that. I am so appreciative of that. And Work hard, be kind is the entire mantra. I've been afforded tremendous opportunities, and I know that. I'm aware of that, and I try to immerse myself fully within that. I know I'm blessed. And having this podcast platform, uh, I, it's a wonderful platform to sit here and run my mouth off with you guys. And I want you to know how much honestly genuinely means to me that you guys take the time every week and i want to thank travis he works so hard to put together these shows not only to get tremendous guests but to edit it all together so that it sounds great i want to thank louise cornetta who took the chance to put travis and me in this platform i want to thank dollar shave club these partners y'all are important to us they are so important to us so it, go to Dollar Shave Club, type in Smith, get yourself some great razors, some good old butt wipes, maybe some shampoo. We all need help. Let them help you. It's just a great, it's a great joy of mine to have this platform. So thank all of you guys. Thanks to Lebetard for his time that he didn't have and he gave me anyway. And I cannot wait to spend this time with you guys again next week. Thank you so much for listening.